Praise the Lord. Well, we're in, we're in Joshua chapter 7 this morning in your Bible or in your app. Uh, Joshua chapter 7. And um, as we go into the Old Testament again, I'm going to give you a little bit of background just really quickly. Um, just uh, we could spend so much time. There's a lot of beautiful details in the history, but those don't need to be mentioned right now. Except you need to know this, that as we're looking in the book of Joshua, Joshua is, is a, a great historical narrative of what happens with God's people when they go into the promised land. You see, all those years that they were in Egypt in captivity, and there was this promise of this deliverer that would come. And Moses rises up and God brings him the most you wouldn't think God would use him. And he tried to deny God using him, but God calls Moses and he becomes the deliverer as they cross the Red Sea with the Egyptians in tow and then the, the waters of the sea collapse on them and they're done with. And God's people are now out of bondage from, from Egypt. And now they're wandering in the wilderness and they're making their way toward the promised land, except the problem is, is that they... Well, they're whining, they're complaining, they're sitting, there's a lot going on. And so they're wandering in the wilderness for a long, long time. And finally, when at the end of Moses' life, after he has sitting under him, and he has trained and he has mentored this young man named Joshua, he's ready to hand over the reins to him. And after Moses gives the entire law in Deuteronomy, he moves on and, and in, in the beginning of Joshua... We have that transition that's happening and the mantle is being passed on. The reins are being taken by Joshua. And there's this beautiful thing that happens. One of the, one of the great passages of Scripture for any of us who are followers of Jesus. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, even to 10. But those verses there where, where God is reminding Joshua that he is to hold on to the word of God, that it's got to be on his right, he's got to be on the tip of his lips, he's got to meditate on it, it's got to be on his mind, he shouldn't turn from it to the left or to the right, and he shouldn't fear because God says, I'm with you, I'm with you, I've given you the training, Moses has taught you, and now you're going into the land that I've promised my people, covenantally, and I'm going to keep my word, and now you're going in. Now, as they're about to go in, and Joshua goes, and they're, and they're getting into the promised land. They go to the Jordan River, and God performs this amazing miracle, right? He dries up. He did this before with water, so it's nothing new to God. But he dries up the Jordan, and God's people walk through. And as they go through, they make a 12-stone monument in recognition and worship and an acknowledgement of God's power and recognizing God's faithfulness. And they're worshiping God in this way and acknowledging how good God is and that he will be true to his word and he'll be with his people Always. That's who our, their God is. And so they get into the promised land. And the first thing, their obstacle that they have as they're moving forward, they come across and they, they come to the city of, of Jericho. Right? This big walled city. Big, big city. And it's in front of them. And, and really, there's, a, there's fear. And they're wondering how they're going to get by these people in the city of Jericho. And chapter 6 is all about that. Chapter 6 is the Jericho story and how God gives that city over and breaks it down and, and they can go through. And it's, it's destroyed by His power, not by Joshua or the armies of, of God's people. It's, it's all God working in this amazing narrative and this account in Scripture here. And as Joshua goes through and he takes Jericho, he now comes upon another city. comes upon a city in chapter 7 named Ai. Pretty simple, right? Two letters, A-I. A-I, that's how you pronounce it. 
He goes to Ai. And he's in front of Ai. And something happens in chapter 7, verse 1, that we'll start with. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter because my text is the whole chapter, but I'll reference the verses and portions as we go along. Verse 1 in chapter 7 says this. Now remember, Jericho is behind them. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. The ban. It's true. There was a ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, and the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Sorry, I like doing that. I don't know why. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. And what happens after chapter 1? Because see, I mean, verse 1. Verse 1 in chapter 7 is this nice, brief, concise summary of everything that happens in chapter 7. Because from verse 2 on all the way down, it tells us how it all went down. It tells us how everything in detail happened that is in verse 1. God's sons, the sons of Israel are unfaithful. They, don't, they blow off God's ban. They did something they shouldn't. God's angry, and this is how it all looked. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. Now, let me just give you something really important just by way of, of comparing and contrasting just so you see something as we move forward in this message that God has for us today and lessons that we ought to learn from Joshua and God's people in chapter 7 in dealing with AI and actually dealing with something much more serious than that. In Jericho, in chapter 6, the previous chapter, when you look at Jericho, Jericho is this big, large city. And now here in chapter 7, you have Ai. And Ai is small. It's a small little city. And historians and archaeologists, they'll tell you, they'll show you, Jericho was much larger than Ai, this little tiny town that they're confronted with. Right? And by comparison, Jericho had very large walls all around it. We know that because we even sing songs about it, you know, with that Jewish flavor. And we celebrate God's victory and His deliverance and His conquer of that city and how they marched around it and what they did, right? And, and then you look at Ai and there's no such mention and actually almost nothing was there to protect it. Small walls, there's nothing really there. If you look historically, many people in Jericho, very few people in Ai. And God, God's orders in, in, in to, for Jericho when it's in front of Joshua and God's people to go through that city, God does something really strange, right? We know it. For six days in a row, they're supposed to march around it, blow the horn, and then that's it. And the people on the walls, these big walls of Jericho are probably like, these people are crazy, man. What are they doing? Marching around our city and then they blow a trumpet once a day and then they do it for six days in a row. And by the third day, fourth day, I'm telling you, those people, the residents of Jericho must have been like, these people are kooky, man. There is something weird about this. And they're just wondering what's going on. And then on the seventh day, God tells them something very specific and more. And this is where the victory came. And he says, march around it seven times, blow that horn. And after the seventh time, when you blow that horn, everyone's got to shout. Now, I have to admit, I think a lot of you, I'm just sorry for calling it out the way it is, and I'm not singling you out, but if it's you, well, that's you. A lot of you would have a hard time with that. 
you won't do it. You still don't do it. And I'm, I'm just talking to you honestly. Some of you still don't do it. You don't do it. You ju- I mean, can I just be honest? Like we have, we have these things in front of us that we've got to overcome in our own personal lives, but also as a church community, as a fellowship. And then when it's time to worship God and when it's time to declare who He is and find victory in that and reassure and shore up our faith by proclamation. And, and I know oh, I can worship in my mind and my heart, but there's something about, I'm not telling you to all shout and jump and get crazy, but some of you have a hard time doing that. Some of you got to start to, to, to shout in your life, to see victory, to see things happen. And it's not a prescription for every situation, please, because we don't see that even in Scripture. I understand that. But some of you have had a really hard time if God said, on the seventh time, you've got to just shout with all you got. You would know what to do because you haven't shouted or praised God for a long, long time vocally. Can I encourage you? Seriously, can I encourage you to try that? You'll be amazed what it does for your faith and for your spiritual journey with Jesus. It's not about the volume. Just do it. Try it. But then we have chapter 7. See, God did these. God had this way of overcoming and bringing victory because the result was victory when they did this. They obeyed. It was faith, this weird thing, and they did it. They obeyed. They're going to go through this pattern of doing things, and God does it because of their faith and their obedience to him. And then they go to Ai, and then what happens in Ai? Joshua does something, and he sends out spies, right? He sends out spies, and he sends out these spies off at a distance. He saw it in front of him, and he saw that it was small, and he says, I'll go check it out, guys. And he sends out his messengers, his spies. They go. They come back, and they're like, they take an assessment, and they're like, I, AI is like nothing. We got this, man. Like, they're small. There's nothing to it. You know, whatever. I'm going to make a reference because I know we have at least a couple like my sons, but maybe a few more who are big NFL fans, right? Like football, you know, or any sport. In, in the NFL and other sports, they have something that they call a trap game. Do you know what a trap game is? Anybody know? A trap game is, is when you just came off a great victory, and then you go the next week against a lesser opponent, and you think, like, I'm not going to prepare. I'm not going to go through all the rich. I, I, it's in your head. You're like, the arrogance sets in. You feel comfortable, and you're like, they're lesser. I just destroyed my opponent. I'm good next week, and you better watch out. And a trap game means you're going to lose. You're going down because you think you And this is what's happening here. Wait a minute. Jericho is huge. AI is nothing. They come back, and Jericho says, Joshua says, what should I do? You find this all in chapter 7. What do I do? What, what should we do? They're like, you know what? All you need is about 2,000 guys, maybe three. We got this. And they go, and what is the result? They lose. They're running back. They do not win. They don't take that city. And, and, and after that, in verse 6, look at verse 6. When they lose, they don't come back. And in fact, there was, there was lives lost. It says in verse 6 in chapter 7, Joshua and the elders of Israel, they tore their clothes. And they also did face plants, literally into the ground on their knees. Their face in the ground before the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God's presence was at that time. And they put dust on their heads. Weird stuff, but it was a sign of their, their, their repentance, their brokenness, their lamenting, their mourning. And even in many cultures around the world, they still do these kinds of things. A sign of this deep grief and lament over the loss. But also questioning while they're on their face, 
How could this happen in the first place? I mean, Jericho? AI? And we're running? God, what's going on? And even Joshua said, and you read the words there, God, the fame of your name is even at stake here. As if God has to really worry about that. But they were representing him. And something happened that defamed God's glory and name in that incident. Then jump to verse 10. While Joshua and the elders of Israel are on their face before God, and they're whining and they're asking God and they're begging and they're pleading, God says, this is what he basically says to Joshua. Cut the act out, man. Stop the act. Like, I know you don't know, because Joshua didn't know exactly what happened. I know you don't know, but, but, but stop the act. All the stuff you know how to do, I get it. Listen, you know why? Because sin was the cause of the trouble. It was sin all along. It was sin. The covenant was broken. Verse 1 tells us that. The spoils from the battle were taken against God's will. Their prohibition, that ban, was already there right before Jericho fell. God told them, when you go to Jericho, you don't take anything. In fact, everything you take that is from Jericho has to go into the temple treasury. It's mine and it's for my glory, if I could kind of add that. It's for God. It's all God's. God says, you can't do that. The only thing you spare and you take is, is Rahab. And you, you, not, all that is mine. Put in the temple treasury. Notice, notice something really, really important. Really important. All along for Jericho, God is having communication with Joshua. Is he not? If you remember the story, you can check it out if you don't believe me in chapter 6. In fact, in chapter 5, before when, when Jericho is in the distance, the angel of the Lord comes, this man of God comes before, and, and jo- Joshua even says, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And it, it was actually, it was God. It was, I believe it was the Son of God who was there and having this conversation and saying, listen, I'm with you, man. And, and so he, there's this dialogue between God and Joshua, and, and God's telling him what to do to have victory. And what happens in Ai? There is no such mention, there is no indication at all anywhere in Scripture that there was any inquiry as to Joshua saying, God, what should we do now? Is this the time? How do we go about this? What are you saying, God? Nothing. But Joshua thought, man, we took Jericho, we got AI. They didn't consult God, and they didn't hear from God. Joshua didn't. And notice, there's no authorization yet to take AI at all. And he goes. So what are we going to learn? Simple lessons, brothers and sisters, my friends. Simple lessons from this history of God's people in this narrative. What are you going to learn? The first thing you ought to learn and we ought to see is that God doesn't tolerate sin and disobedience. Now, before I carry on, I just want to encourage you with something. Because I know for some of you, and for a lot of us, I want to, this isn't a doom and gloom message. This isn't about squashing you and making you feel like you're, you know, dung. That's not, that's not what this is. This is just a reminder and a lesson for us because we have hope. We have hope and we're going to get there at the end. We have great hope, in fact, and assurance. But I just want to let you know, this is critical and important for us to understand that God does not tolerate sin and disobedience. Why does this matter and why does this story matter? Because the picture of God's people coming out of their wandering after they've been in bondage to Egypt for 400 some years, now they've crossed over, they're in the promised land, and God has everything there for them. It's theirs. God promised them. And yet they struggle and they fight and they're weary and they don't know what to do and they suffer loss and they're frustrated and they sin and 
And God says, it's all yours, and yet they're having a hard time. And you know why? It's a parallel to our life that when we've been removed from the bondage of Satan and sin and, and, and even ourselves, that we, we get pulled out of that when Jesus died on the cross. He forgives us. And we've got this new life we've got to walk in and live in that we're often faced with these things like Jericho and Ai. In fact, I don't pretend to think that it's what it really means, except some scholars and commentators believe that Jericho is a picture of the world. You know, it's big, it's strong, and God had one method of overcoming that, and faith overcoming the world, right? Because we're told about that in the New Testament. But Ai is a picture of... It's a picture of our flesh. It's a picture of me. You know, the, 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 the worst way, the easiest way, the most destructive thing and the way to go down, if I could put it that, that way, is not from outside external things, but from within. Even historically. But it's within. We, we get destroyed and broken down from within. And that's why God cares about sin, because it works from within and it destroys. God does not tolerate sin and disobedience. He means what he says. He does. He's to be taken seriously. And his word has to be believed. It must be believed. And there was a ban not to take anything for themselves from this conquest. It was still active. There was no, there was no change in that. Look at verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban which goes back to chapter 6 and verse 18, as I mentioned earlier. And now God says, Israel, the sons of Israel, it's God's people, it's plural. Do you know why? I'll tell you in a little bit. Because it's important to note that it says that it's the sons of Israel, even though you'll see it's one individual. All right? God does not tolerate sin and disobedience. So the problem is for Joshua and the elders... Who? Where? When? How did this happen that now we're on our face and 36 people died and, and we don't have AI and it's so much smaller? And you see, it's, it's not only that God doesn't tolerate sin and disobedience, but the second lesson we have to learn is that, and, and honestly, unfortunately, for so many of us, including myself, we're still learning the hard way, this lesson, that nothing is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God. It's not. Nothing. Hebrews 4.13 says this. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Scripture. That's who our God is. And this truth, when you think about it, this truth brings us two things. Two things this truth brings us. First of all, especially as, as people of God, and even if you're not a child of God, but these words that God sees everything and everything's exposed before Him should bring us comfort. But how so, Pastor Bob? Well, it brings us comfort because we are then aware, or we are aware that God is aware of everything about us, and He is aware of all the stuff that we're going through. And that's comforting because we know that we have the God of the universe, our Lord and our Savior, with us. 
He knows what burdens we're carrying. He sees it. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows the people that are giving us difficulties in our lives. He knows all that stuff. And we can, we can, be, we can be comforted by the fact that He is fully aware of everything about you, in you, and around you. That's comforting. But here's the other part, the other side of the coin, or the double, the other side of the sword, if you will, in a sense, is this, is that it also should bring us conviction. It should bring us conviction, because that awareness that God has of everything about us brings conviction, because not only is He aware, the one that is aware, but He is the God who will bring you to account. Oh, He knows everything, and that's, and that keeps us going sometimes. But when, but when we know, we're wondering, God, in the corner of, you know, in the back of your mind, and you're kind of looking over your shoulder before you do something or before you say something, it's because you know. There's, there's, there's conviction because you know, I've got to answer for this, and God knows. And I, I, uh, 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 uh. There's conviction. There's comfort and there's conviction. Nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Nothing. Nothing at all. And the accounting in our Scripture text begins. God tells Joshua by verse 18, and before verse 18, right before that, God tells Joshua to publicly go through all of the tribes of Israel until the guilty is exposed. I wonder what that would be like if we did that today among God's people in the church. I'm not suggesting we do that, by the way. I don't think God would be displeased with that. But, but I wonder. I think I know what will happen. And pardon my frankness and my directness. Oh, Pastor Bob, we can't possibly do that. Even if we know that someone's sinning and we want to help them and encourage them and point it out. They're not, oh, but they're not wanting to repent. We, we can't do that. We will damage their psyche. The psychological damage will last the rest of their lives. And it's going to be our fault. We can't call out sin. We can't do that until we find out the root cause of the problem. And you know what? For almost 2,000 years after the first church, the church has been doing that. And where are we? Where are we? And we keep hiding. And we keep pretending. And I'm not suggesting we do that. Don't, I know you're not misunderstanding me. I'm just saying I know what would happen. We would be rev, just, it'd be a revulsion. That's impossible. That's crazy. But that's what God said to do. Listen, the first church was very sensitive to sin. And we have become so desensitized and so tolerant of sin and things that displease God. And we just carry along all in the name of grace and mercy and patience. And we should. But we just carry along, and in the end, we tolerate and accept, and God says, I don't tolerate sin like you do. You might think it's okay, but there is no place for me to tolerate sin and disobedience to my will. Because nothing's hidden from me, and I know it all, so stop pretending. Just bring it out. The accounting begins, and by verse 18 in chapter 7, there's a man named Achan, and Achan is found out. I mean, again, just imagine the scene, and I'm not saying I want to even want to do it. I'm just saying, but imagine this scene. All the tribes coming before Joshua and the elders, and they're asking and they're confronting. All the tribes, all the clans in the tribes, all the families. And finally, after they get to the tribe of Judah, Achan, you're the guy. 
Come on, please, just confess it, Joshua says. Say it the way it is, because God knows, and God wants to be merciful. I think He does. So come on, just, just say it the way it is. Here's the thing. In verse 20, Achan says this. It's true. It's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. By the way, if you want another lesson about how, about how to make things right, you know, we often say things like, Lord, please forgive me for all the sins I've done and you know, whatever sins I've committed. You know what you've done. I know what I've done. Whether it's something in here or it's something I've actually done, I know. And then I still say, God, you know whatever I've done for you. No, God wants us to be specific. Say it the way it is. Point it out. Expose it specifically so it can get rooted out in your own life. God sees and knows why you're hiding. This is what I have done, he says. Those are words in Scripture. And then he says exactly what happens in verse 21. When I saw him to plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. It's about a pound of gold. You do the math at $1,800 a pound. I mean, an ounce. That's some pretty good money, okay? And he says, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw, I coveted, I took it. It's that physical thing. It's the process of how sin works. I saw, I physically want, I saw that. I saw, I saw it and it was my eyes. And then my, my mind and my heart said, yeah, I want that stuff. That's nice stuff. Even though God said there's a ban on it, I coveted. It was in my mind. I desired that. I wanted that. And then his will kicks in and, and he makes a willful decision and acts and he says, I took. By the way, this is parallel to what Joshua did with the city of Ai. Jericho's behind them. Ah, there's little puny Ai. The spies told me it's nothing. I want that. I saw it. It's small. It's in my way. We're, we're, we, we can take this. I want it. And I, well, I almost took it. He didn't get it. Not right away. He didn't get it. He didn't take it. He didn't get it. He just fell short. In fact, they're running away. And Aiken's, and the thing about Aiken, going back to Aiken, is that he sort of hid these spoils, if I could put it this way, under the rug in his tent. Yeah, it was directly in the ground. And I don't know if he put, you know, because when you dig it up and you try to tamp it down and hide it, maybe it was still fresh. You could see it. Maybe he put a shield, his spear, other stuff. Maybe he did have an actual rug. But he probably covered it up so that it's not so obvious if somebody came in. But he had this stuff buried literally in the ground. You know what the truth is? Is that we do the same thing thing i do the same thing i don't like admitting that but i do we sweep stuff under the rug because it's not a big deal we say and no one will see it doesn't really affect anybody it's not it's that's okay but listen i'm going to tell you something that's really that's the truth time has a way of revealing what's under the rug and more importantly god already knows he does. Over time, the stuff under our rug, think about your own life. We put things under there, and over our lifetime, the stuff piles up under the rug. Wouldn't you think that over time, people would notice, boy, your rug is really lumpy down there. 
there's like all kinds of stuff under there. Or how come that corner where your rug is is like, you know, six inches high? It's, what's under there? It's kind of weird, you know? People will start noticing that something isn't right. And, and not only that, the rug will eventually wear through over time. Rugs don't last forever. And it, it will be exposed what's underneath it. Or even more dramatically, it might just get completely torn off and everything under there will be seen. And we think that we're so clever with the ways that we conceal our sins and I don't even have to name them because in your heart and Holy Spirit, you know how we try to be, we put on our face and we put on this and we push that over there and don't deal with that and hide that for a while and I'll deal with that next year and that person is too difficult right now and whatever and we just keep putting it under the rug. Nothing is hidden from God. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? A lot of you know that story. The early church, they're, they're, they're bringing things to the apostles, and the early church is meeting the needs, the high demand of needs with the poverty in the church. And, and people are making offerings, if you will, to the apostles, from finances to, to, to hard goods, whatever it is, and they're using those to, to, to help those in need. And one of the things that people were doing was selling properties and then bringing the profits and laying it down before or giving a a portion of the profits they committed to God before the apostles. And then they would use that to help others. And this couple, this clever couple, right? They thought they were so slick. The husband gets this idea. Listen, we just made a $50,000 profit on our sale. Let's give, let's not give God the 20,000 we said. Let's give him 10 and keep the 10 for ourselves. And his wife, the scripture says, went along with him and agreed with it. She was in on it. And then when they come to bring it, the apostles say, listen, you're lying. I'm just jumping ahead and paraphrasing. You're lying. You're, 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 you're lying not only to us, but you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You've been found out. And you know what happened to them when that, when that took place? Anybody know? Yeah, they're the bug in my palm. That's what happened. Now, now, I understand God doesn't do this all the time, but I don't want to test him. Do you? Because he could. I don't know that. I am not going to test God with stuff like that. That's lying to the Holy Spirit. And God made an example of them, and fear filled the church. In other words, there was a reverence to understand that God doesn't tolerate sin and disobedience, and that nothing is hidden from God. I would be... <sighs> all right, back on track. There's a steep price that is paid when we do this in the end. And so Achan, going back to Achan, he's exposed. And so is his sin. And it reveals to us the third and final lesson this morning. That sin is never just personal or in isolation. I want to say that again. Because I guess I'm speaking for myself too. I really do believe this is the truth. That the vast majority of us, if not all of us, know it, but we really don't understand that sin is never just personal or in isolation. Never, ever, ever. Show me in Scripture. Show me. I want to see it. It is never just personal and isolation. Our sin always, always, always affects others. Always. Israel failed in taking Ai. And what was the consequence? 
36 soldiers died as a result of Achan's sin. And yet it's attributed to the sons of Israel because he was in there and that one individual had an effect. And now he's representing all of them honestly in this situation. And so God says the sons of Israel, and yet it's one person, but he affected everyone and 36 soldiers died and they didn't take that city. In fact, Achan paid the price as well because he had the same outcome that Ananias and Sapphira had, except it was a not very pleasant thing, and I don't even want to address it because it was not pretty what happened to him and his family. It was a steep price to pay for a hidden sin swept under the rug, quite literally. Think about the ripple effects of sin in your life. Whether it was your sin hurting others, or the sin of others that impacted you. Sin is not just personal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's a sad account, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and they're boasting about a disgusting sin. Well, all sin is disgusting. But disgusting activities that are sinful that are happening in the church. And Paul says, you guys are boasting about it. It shouldn't even be that way. And he talks about it, and he says something. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And he's, he's talking about sin. And when you boast about it, how it spreads, and you tolerate it, and you become insensitive to it, and then you're okay with it, and it becomes a part of you, just like... That little leaven goes throughout that whole thing and affects the entire clump of dough. And he uses the same expression. Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23 to 24, and he writes to the Galatians, and he, and he says the exact same thing. But this time, it's in reference to bad doctrine or teaching that will affect and it'll affect everything you do and it will, it'll, it'll ruin you. It'll corrupt. It will, it will destroy in the end. And if it's left unchecked, it will. It will destroy. You know, little things like, well, God's okay if you're a homosexual and you're married with another guy or one guy with another guy and you're practicing that lifestyle. No. 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 Can I just tell you something? That's one example. I know. That's banned in Scripture. And we're going to do it. You know what else God says is a sin? God says gluttony is a sin. Have you ever overeaten? How many times have you repented? I'm just, I'm just making a comparison because we love to go to things like, well, we talk about things like homosexuality, but we won't go to those things like overeating on a regular basis. You're sinning and it's, it's, it's ugly to God just as much. But no, we don't tolerate those things. And there's a book written by Jerry Bridges. It's called Respectable Sins. And it's all these sins. And we can, we can come up with these ideas that we can tear sins and say, well, nah, no, that one's too gross or that one's too severe. This one's okay. We can tolerate that. We'll put up with it. And the more you do that, it starts to leaven the whole lump of dough. And we become accepting and tolerant. And we start to accept even false teaching and doctrines and things that violate the very principle of Scripture that says that all men are created equal or the same or in the image of God have equal dignity and worth no matter where they're from, no matter what the color of the skin is, no matter what the socioeconomic status is. And we violate that when we jump in the same boat with social justice movements 
that teach things that are opposed to the truth of Scripture, from BLM and to everything else. Yes, I said it, because it's true. And the more we do that, the more the leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So yes, it is sinful things. Yes, it is teaching and doctrine and philosophies. And those things come in, and before you know it, Remember that sin is not just personal insulation. It affects not only us, but those around us. I would be remiss if I did not remind you that we should not expect God's protection when we intentionally continue to sin and hide it or pretend that we didn't sin. It's just a warning. I said all that to come to the best part of all this because we're all there, right? In some way, shape, or form, I'm there. We're all there. And it does grieve me because I realize how holy my God is and how much He loves us. And, and yes, I do fail Him. And yes, I'm grateful for His grace and His patience and His mercy. And yet I keep sweeping things under the rug and I know He sees things and I still try to hide. And God says, stop it already. Just say it the way it is. and Just, just confess. Because there is hope. There is hope, especially on this side of the cross, because we have Jesus who died for us and rose again. There is a solution for our sins, even the ones that are under the rug. 1 John 1.9 assures us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and, forgive, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All because of what Jesus did in dying on the cross for our sins and rising to make us right with God. There is hope. You might be in that situation. You might be there. You might be feeling uncomfortable and all that. Listen, you don't have to be uncomfortable and bound by sin and hiding things. You can be free because there is hope and we have assurance that because Jesus died for you once for all your sins, you can keep going to Him as 1 John 1.9 tells us. Keep going, keep going, keep repenting. Saying, Don't hide it, just give it to Him. He already knows it. Give it to Him and you'll be walking in freedom and the abundant life that He has to offer you. You won't be playing games. You'll be living. You'll be really living as a child of God, not playing games. So where does it all lead us? Actually, it segues perfectly to communion. In front of you, I'm going to ask you to grab your communion cup, and I'll share a couple brief thoughts, and we're going to partake. I'm going to grab my cup that I forgot to get. Paul wrote, don't open it yet. I want you to listen. Just for Don't open it yet. I want you to listen. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, this is what the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I'm not going to go through an exposition of what that all is, but let's look at verse 28. Everyone 
ought to examine themselves before they... Before. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Brothers and sisters, my friends, these are not my words. Because listen to what verse 30 says. And when we talk about Achan and Ananias and Sapphira, and I'm not suggesting that God is merciful and graceful and gracious, and thank you for that, Lord. He's compassionate and He's patient. But I don't want to test God. Let me just tell you something. In verse 30, look at what it says. That is why. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And he's talking about they, they died. It's serious stuff. We are called to examine ourselves before we eat. Remember, as you take this cup, don't open it yet. Remember, God doesn't tolerate sin. But He did something about it. Thank you, Lord. Nothing is hidden from Him. Sin isn't just personal. Never. Because it affects others, not just you. Maybe you're thinking this morning, right now, right now you're thinking, I know, and you're in your mind, you're sitting there, and you're saying, I know I should confess. That's good. That's a great start. That's called conviction. There's something happening, and you're saying, I know I should confess, and you know what that is, because it's been under the rug, and you've got to get it out and just give it to God. Or maybe you're a step further, and you're saying in your mind this, I will confess, and I'm going to come clean. I will confess, and I am going to come clean. That's great. That's a great thought and your heart's going the right direction. That's just good intention. That I, I will confess and I, and I am going to come clean. That's good intention. But I, can I encourage you to do something even better? I encourage you to just do it. Come to the altar. Come to Jesus. Wherever you are, if it's in your seat, if you have to come up here, that's fine. And say, I'm sorry, I have sinned. This is what it is. I'm pulling the rug off of it. Please take it, God, forgive me, and He will cleanse you and wash you. Because we celebrate that He gave Himself and He shed His blood to do just that. These cups, I mean, if you unsealed it, that's up to you. It's not unsealed yet. Because I'm going I'm to pray, and I'm going to ask you, before you partake, to examine. And maybe you need to get some things right. Maybe it's between you and God. Maybe it's between you and you. Maybe it's between you and somebody here. Don't keep it under the rug. God sees everything, and he wants it to be good. Lord, I pray that uh, you would take these words. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, convict us, and cause us, Lord, to run to you, full of faith, transparency, sincerity, and confess to you, all our sins. Help us to repent. Thank you that you help us to do that. And thank you that you'll wash our sins away because you're a faithful God. Amen.